How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we'll take a few moments for silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to gather together to study your word. We continue to pray for our nation. We pray for our security. We pray for our president. We pray for those in leadership positions, both in the military and in the civil government. pray that you would give them wisdom uh, to make the right decisions regarding the uh, course of this nation. We pray that you would give the right information to them through the intelligence services that uh, they can make the right decisions, that you would protect us from those who would seek to do us harm. Father, we continue to pray for us that we would uh, not be distracted from living our Christian life, that we might keep the focus on spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, and living today in light of eternity. Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might again be impressed both with the historical accuracy of your word, its inerrancy and infallibility, and the scope that it provides and gives us for looking at human history. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's clear that Jesus Christ controls history. That's something we have to remember every day when we are faced with the morning news and nightly news, with the increase of terrorism threats, the increased terrorist activities around the uh, around the globe, uh, different things that happen in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. We live in a world that since 9-11 is vastly different from the world that existed before then. And the one confidence that we have is that history is moving toward a destination. And that history has been moving toward this destination for thousands of years according to the plan of God. And when we come to a passage like Genesis chapter 10 and into chapter 11, we we look at the foundation of that history in this uh, civilization. There are three great civilizations in human history. The first civilization is the antediluvian civilization, meaning the civilization that preceded the flood. Then we have the current post Diluvian civilization, which runs from the flood to the second coming of Christ. And then we have the uh, millennial civilization. Each one of these civilizations has different uh, characteristics. Each one has a different uh, purpose in the angelic conflict. 
And each one is described in history. However, it is this second one, the post-Diluvian civilization, that is the one that we're most familiar with. That's the one in which we live. And that is the one that is given the greatest uh, span of time in the Scripture. The antediluvian civilization went from Adam to Noah. The millennial kingdom will cover the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. But the post-Dilivian civilization goes from Noah through the uh, second advent. Each one has different climate aspects. Each one has different uh, elements related to the animal kingdom. Remember, in the antediluvian civilization, they were only one step removed from uh, the perfect environment of Eden. And the animals only gradually developed characteristics that made them aggressive, that made them meat eaters, uh, that made them dangerous to man. In fact, the real hostility that comes in between the animal kingdom and mankind doesn't come about until the post-Diluvian civilization is part of the Noahic covenant. You have different animals in each of each each uh, civilization as well. You had dinosaurs and a number of uh, different species that were there prior to the flood that died out in the post-Diluvian environment and in the millennial kingdom. There will be no antagonism between animals. The lion will lie down with the lamb, and there will not be this antagonism either between animals or animals and mankind. So we're looking at this post-Diluvian civilization, and it begins with the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and, and Japheth. And we're covering the section in Genesis 10, that begins with Japheth, then we get an expanded genealogy from Ham, and then we go to Shem, and then Genesis 11 gives us even a more detailed look at Shem. So obviously it's building to the focus on the descendants of Shem and how that fulfills the blessing that's in the Noahic covenant, or excuse me, that's in the Noahic Oracle that comes at the end of Genesis uh, 9. If we're going to understand what is going on in Genesis 10 and 11, the framework is really established back at the end of chapter 9 with the Oracle of Noah when he curses Canaan, blesses uh, Shem in the realm of his relationship to God, under the concept, under the uh, terminology, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. And then the blessing for Japheth in verse 27, may God enlarge Japheth. Now this works itself out when we get into Genesis chapter 10. Now we don't have a lot when it comes to the descendants of Japheth. It seems rather brief in the original. We only have uh, five verses And these five verses give us the descendants of Japheth. He has seven sons, as we covered last time, seven sons mentioned in verse 2. Of those sons, only two are singled out with their descendants. Gomer is mentioned in verse 3. We have uh, three of his sons mentioned. And then the sons of uh, Javan, another uh, son of, uh, of Japheth. And we have four of his mentioned. So... That gives us a grand total of 14. 
Yet the emphasis here is on this expansion of Japheth. And it's not that apparent to us when we look at this because when we compare the number of descendants for Japheth to the number that are listed for Ham and for Shem, Japheth seems to get sort of a short shrift. Not much is mentioned here. And because all of us, as far as I can tell looking around the room, are descendants from Japheth, I've spent a little more time there. That has more to do with Western European civilization. And when we get to verse 6, probably tonight, and begin to look at the descendants of Ham, that's a little more familiar to us because these involve people who are mentioned frequently in the Scripture. And so there's less uh, confusion there, although there are a number of groups of people who are descendants from Cush that are not, uh, they're not clearly identified. We know very little about them. They're not mentioned again in Scripture. And then we come to the descendants of, of Japh, or excuse me, of Shem in verse 22. And again, we're familiar with those particular people. The thrust here is to demonstrate not only descendancy as to who comes through what line, but it is also to demonstrate certain family allegiances and alliances that become dominant later on in history and become uh, important in understanding different aspects of prophecy, some of which I went over last time, and I want to come back and revisit that tonight before we move on into a look at Ham. But when we look at this structure, we see that it is an expansion of the cursing and blessing of verse 25. The only time we have any diversion in this chapter is an explanation in verses 8 through uh, 11 of the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom. And there we immediately are introduced to the fact that there is an, an ominous overtone here that he is the founder of Babel. And that immediately tells us that this is something that's negative. And so this is the only thing mentioned of the descendants of, of Ham. And, of course, if you were reading this as a Jew, the fact that, that uh, Canaan is a descendant of Ham would also have very negative overtones. Then after you finish the three genealogies of chapter 10, there's a nine-verse expansion on the Tower of Babel. So everything really focuses on what is happening at Babel. But because we're so unfamiliar with these names and nations and everything, it's important to go through this in order to uh, familiarize ourselves with something about who these people groups are. Second reason it's important is because these chapters, as I've said again and again, from Genesis 1 through Genesis 11, are under assault and have been under assault ever since the birth of the so-called Enlightenment in the 17th century, that one of the basic undergirding assumptions of the Enlightenment is that you really couldn't trust any of the stories, any of the histories that had been written prior to the 1600s. That's the enormous arrogance that came into Western civilization through philosophy as it threw off what they considered to be the yoke of religion. And in some cases it was because of the way the uh, Roman Catholic theology operated. 
and it did not allow any room for investigation within a biblical framework, and it was too bound by tradition. It, too, had basic epistemological problems. But beginning with the birth of the Enlightenment, you had scholars questioning the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11, whether creation could have occurred that way, whether there was really a universal flood, whether the uh, table of nations in Genesis 10 was accurate or not, and how could we know these things. And, and more and more scholars began to uh, doubt the historicity of these 11 chapters. And so you have many people who don't spend any time studying them in terms of their historical value and their historical uh, significance. And frequently, uh, when you get to a chapter like chapter 10, you will find that pastors will simply skip over it or, or they'll teach the whole chapter in one 40-minute lesson and exposition simply because they don't want to run the risk of boring anybody to death with all of this uh, minutia related to people that apparently don't have any relevance to us us today. But we understand that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And if the Holy Spirit took the time to record this in Scripture, then it's important for us to understand it. And it may simply be because this gives you a framework for your thought. It may also be because it is going to increase your confidence in the historicity of the Scripture, the accuracy of the Scripture, so that when the Scripture teaches you about other things related to either your spiritual life or other dimensions of life, then you know that you can count on it, that in areas where we can evaluate the Scripture because of known history or historical events, we know that it is trustworthy and it is, therefore, what it claims to be uh, the Word of God. Now, the first son that's mentioned is Japheth in verse 2. And last time I mentioned that uh, when we look at a lot of these names, we have to realize that a certain number of uh, certain kinds of changes take place when words go from one language to another. And from what our understanding is of the origin of these languages, many of them merely had consonantal uh, alphabets when they began. That, that means that like Hebrew... They did not write vowels. They simply wrote uh, the consonants down. And often you have certain things that shifted when they went from one language to another. For example, you ha- have often have a relationship between J and Y. In one language, the J is pronounced like a J. Another language, it's pronounced like a H uh, as a, as a um, soft guttural and in others it's pronounced like a Y. For example, you, you write the letter J in German, yet you pronounce it like we pronounce an English Y. Another shift takes place between the letter V and W, and this can also move over to an O sound. In fact, the Hebrew letter Vav, which in many uh, Hebrew uh, textbooks is written as a as a wow and in fact i think a lot of students pronounce it as a wow and yet i was taught a more of a german pronunciation where we pronounced it as a vav which shows the pronouncing the w as if it's a v but when you put a dot over that vav that in hebrew is the vowel point 
O. So you see there's a certain, these letters re- relate to each other, and so when words move from, from one language to another language, there are certain changes. There are other changes that occur. For example, in some uh, alphabets you have a soft sibilant C that will harden to a K. You don't have a C sound. You don't have a letter C in, in Greek. You do have a sibilant with a sigma. But if it's a C, it'll harden to a K in Greek. You also have other things that happen in languages. For example, an M may move into another language and pick up a B. For example, in Latin you have the uh, word numerous. And when that comes into English, it becomes number. So you have to trace these things. This isn't easy. There's not too many people who are doing a technical analysis on tracing out the table of nations these days. And that's primarily because uh, in, in vast amounts of scholarship, they just reject the historicity of this out of hand. This is just some made-up document that was written to justify Jewish aggression against the Canaanites. My, doesn't that have a modern ring to it? We're just, uh, it's, it's just the same song, second or third or fourth verse all over again. Well, what's interesting is when you get into Japheth and you have that J-A-P-H-E-T-H, that's a J-P-T, which can also be an I-P-T. And I pointed out last time that in Greek you have a figure known as Iapetas, who is the father of the Greeks. And uh, Aristophanes, the clouds, Iapetas is referred to as one of the titans, and he's referred to as the father of Atlas. So this stuff merges into, into Greek mythology. According to Greek legend and mythology, Iapetas was the father of not just the Greeks, but the entire human race. Uranus, which is the Greek word for heaven, which comes across in English to uh, Uranus, which is the name of the, what is it, the eighth planet. Uh, Uranus and Gaia, which is earth, heaven and earth, uh, married and gave birth to six sons and six daughters. But only Iapetas, who was one of those, had human descendants. Iapetas marries uh, Clymene, let me put all this up here so you can at least read it. Iapetas marries Clymene, and they have uh, a daughter, which is written in Greek, Okeanus, which comes across to English as Oceanus. Notice how that K went to a C, to Oceanus, as well as Prometheus, Remember, it was uh, Prometheus who's chained up on the rock. Uh, Prometheus and three other sons. Prometheus has a son known as Deucalion. And this is the Greek Noah. This is Deucalion is the one who's responsible for saving the human race during the time of worldwide uh, collapse. And Deucalion then has a son named Helene. And, of course, the Greeks are known as the Hellenes. That is a very ancient name for the Greeks. And he has a son named Ion. Now, remember, in the Table of Nations, you have a grandson, Javan. 
and that is these these go together, Ion or Iona, and the Greeks were also known as Ionians. So this shows that according to Greek legend, there's a there is a grandson of the or the second generation after their flood is Ion, comparable to Javan, which correlates with what you have in the biblical uh, genealogy. And according to Homer, the majority of the Greeks were Ionians. Now, one of the other interesting things that happens in history is that you have, you have the division of the human race into three groups. According to uh, Genesis chapter 9, there's the uh, Hamitic descendants, the Shemitic descendants, and the Japhetic descendants. Now, the Japhetic descendants split very early on into two basic groups. There's the western branch, and then there is an eastern branch. The eastern branch became known as Arius or Arians. The eastern branch, which goes on into Europe had a different name, which I've lost somewhere down in my notes right now, but we'll come to it before long. And this, again, was a name that is also related, as we'll see. Oh, I don't know where I put that in my notes. That's going to be down under uh, Javan. That he is, it's Yavanas. Yavanas. So these were ancient terms for these two divisions under Japheth. And Yavanas and, of course, Javan are etymologically related. So you can see that just two generations from Noah, you have a major uh, split between two groups. Now, the eastern Japhetic groups, known as the Aryans, give birth to the Persians and the uh, northern Indian tribes in India, which would include Afghan, modern Afghanistan as, and Pakistan. Now, on the Indian side of this family tree, the Noah character is known as Satyarata, and that's spelled S-A-T-Y-A-U-R-A-T-A, and that's the uh, Aryan Noah. And Saturata has three sons. Okay, we'll just scroll up here. He's got three sons. We'll just call him Sat. He's got three sons. Notice how this correlates. The oldest son is named Yapati. Very easy to see how that relates to Japheth. The second son is Sharma, like Shem. And the third son is karma like Ham. So ancient Aryan legend correlates with the... And there's been no influence there from the Bible. This is a completely non-biblical civization. So once again, you have correlation with the biblical information. 
And what's interesting is when you read these old mythologies, and you've read some of them with the Greeks and, and others, you, you go through there and you realize that there's certain things there that are just fantastical. You know, they're, they're, they're fantasy. You know, they don't fit into reality. And then when you come over and you look at the Scripture, you just see this bare-bones outline. There's no real, there's no extreme claims. You don't find odd, unusual things going on that stretch your credibility. So this correlates to Scripture and gives us, it doesn't prove that Scripture is right, but it gives us confirmation that what the Scripture is giving us is accurate historical information. Now, that's the father of the this first branch, the Japhetic group. He has seven sons. Last time we went through those sons, we looked at Gomer. Uh, Gomer is important because of his uh, reference in, Gen- in Ezekiel chapter 38, uh, verse 6. Gomer, with all of his troops, are going to be... Uh, allied with Persia. Now, Persia is another Japhetic descendant. Ethiopia and Put. Now, those two groups we'll look at. They're Hamitic, and they are in in uh, North Africa. Ethiopia and Put is Libya. They will be united along with Gomer and all its troops, along with Beth Togarma. These are, uh, this is a grandson of Noah from the remote parts of the north. So we have to identify these people, and that's where some of this really comes in. And, and it's fascinating. It's also difficult to trace down a lot of this stuff. I made some comments last week, which I want to revise this week, and <clears throat> spent some time uh, re- researching some things and ran across a, a doctoral dissertation that fortunately got condensed into a three-part series of articles in a Michigan theological journal just on the derivation of the name Rosh. Because when we get into Ezekiel 38, there is the um, merger of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, we have mentioned here as the sons of Japheth, we have Meshach and Tubal are mentioned and then there's this last name, Tiras. And we have to do some analysis of that that we didn't do uh, last time. And that those last three names all connect to Ezekiel 38. So last time I went over Gomer and I mentioned how that name, and if we, especially if we just examine the consonantal base, that tri, called a trilateral because it's the, a letter, trilateral root of Gomer, G-M-R. And I pointed out that the G often will either soften. It's a guttural, so it'll soften to a soft guttural, which is just like a, uh, like a uh sound, like you'll have with the Hebrew, the letter ayin, and that will often just go to an U or an O in English. The M picks up an M-B, and then you have the R, so you have like the area in um, in in, uh, in Umber in in Italy, and then you have North Umbria in England. Another way that you can take this is if if the in the GMR the G hardens to a C or a K sound, 
you end up with KMR or CMR. Now, the CMR spelling goes to the uh, Chimerians, C-I-M-M-E-R-I-N-S, and they lived in the area north of the Black Sea, in what is now modern Ukraine. And it's interesting how that terminology uh, goes down through history, or at least the root letters. You also have the another way in which this spelling goes is the C is the G stays the same, the M moves to a um, goes to a letter uh, U, and the R goes to a letter L, which becomes the root of Gaul or the Galicians, or which is the root for Gallic, or Galatians. And there's a reference in uh, commentary on the life of the Apostle Paul, where he is writing about where the author has been doing his homework, and he, in fact, he calls the Galatians Kimric Gauls ties those two things together. And this basic word, Kimrick, which is related to the Chimerians who inhabited the area north of Turkey, north of the, of the Black Sea, the Welsh, who are Gauls, they're Celts, refers to themselves in their own language as the Kimri. You have a place in Denmark called Kimrishaven, or in English it would be Kimri's Haven, and that is related to this same root. So you end up finding Gomer's name just plastered all over Western Europe in one form or another. It's tied to uh, it's tied to the Irish. It's tied to the Celts. It's tied to the uh, the Gauls in France. It's tied to the uh, other Gauls who went east in, into Galatia. It's tied to the uh, Umber area in North Italy and Northumberland in England. It's, it just shows up all over, all over England. I mean, all over Western Europe. The second son we looked at last time, Magog, and we saw Magog's a key figure in Ezekiel 38:2. That's the, that invasion from the north. There is often referred to as the Gog and Magog invasion, and that related to an area in Cappadocia. Uh, the, both Magog and Gog were tied to the Caucasus area, which is up in that southern Russia area. They're tied to the Scythians, and it is the descendants of Magog that make up the, the core or one core group part of the Slavic or Russian people. Then you have the Media, uh, Medi. He's the father of the Medes. We covered that last time. Javan, or I, I Ion or Iona, and we, I covered that last time in detail. He is the father of many of the Greeks. And what we'll see tonight is you really have a merger in two or three different groups of here that merge together in terms of their being the father of the Greek uh, people. Then we have Tubal, and I pointed out last time that Tubal... Uh, is related to a group the Assyrians called the Tabali, T-A-B-A-L-I, in modern 
Georgia, which is once again in that area between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, and the capital of Georgia, here you have Tubal, the capital of Georgia is spelled Tbilisi, which preserves the three consonants of Tubal. So that puts Tubal in the north. Then we have Meshach, and Meshach was the, according to uh, Josephus, was the father of the Cappadocians. Now, Cap- Cappadocia, let me draw a rough map here. Here's, uh, here's the Greek peninsula coming down like this. Then you have the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus, and up here is the Black Sea. And here you have Turkey. And part of Turkey here in the central western part was Cappadocia. Just south of the, of the Black Sea over here is the, uh, here's Ararat located here. And then over here to the, further to the east is the, uh, uh, Caspian Sea. So we're, and a lot of this is taking place in this general area. You have the, uh, Chimerians up here to the north of the Black Sea. You have the Cappadocians here to the south. This is Meshach. And they eventually migrate, uh, to the north. Then you have this last group, Tiras. Now, Tiras is spelled T-I-R-A-S, and Josephus identifies Tiras, and I said this last time based on Josephus, as the father of the Thracian people. Now, Thrace is up here in the northern part of, uh, of Greece, next to, or kind of in the, here's Macedonia here. Thrace is over in this area, sort of the northeastern part uh, of Greece. But Josephus was mistaken. He based his identification simply on the similarity of sound, which in many ways can help you, but in some ways can lead you astray. And what we have here, remember, you take out the vowels, and you end up with with three consonants, T-R-S. And what seems to survive down through the language historically is that R-S concept. That R-S consonant, various words based on that, uh, show up in Egyptian literature, show up in Assyrian records, and also show up in Hittite records. And these people were quite dominant in the, in the ancient world. We're talking the period from roughly 2500 B.C., which is not long after they came off the boat, that's the ark, to 1500 B.C. They, they, uh, they begin to uh, go through a military decline between 1500 and 1300, or probably closer to 1300 B.C. And as a result of that, they dominate in this area, which is like eastern Turkey, Armenia, uh, northwest Syria today, under what was known as the Mitanni Kingdom. And they deteriorate about 1300 to 1200 B.C., and guess which direction they go? Due north into Russia. And it is those descendants who, incidentally, were blue-eyed and blonde. And we have uh, his records in that we've uncovered in Egyptian archaeology that give us documentation on this. For example, there's an Egyptian inscription from the 4th Dynasty. That is very early. 
first dynasties right off the ark. In fact, I'm of the opinion that the pharaoh, first pharaoh of the of the uh, of the first dynasty was probably Ham. Those early founders of those civilizations were Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Shem doesn't, they don't die until 500 years after the flood. So they're around for many years and they are the ones who built those early civilizations. So Ham, I believe, was probably the first identified with the first Pharaoh and later becomes identified with the chief of the Egyptian pantheon. But that's a totally different study. I don't have time to get into all of that this evening. But we have an Egyptian inscription from the 4th dynasty, which according to Egyptian dating is about 2600 B.C. And in the past I've done an analysis of Egyptian dating, which is probably off as much as 300 years. So if the 4th dynasty is, if you correct that date to about 2300 B.C., then that places this uh, very early. And it mentions... A, in this one inscription, it mentions a favored male servant who was from the country of Rosh. Now, where this gets important is because it is the last three sons of Japheth, or Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. Where I'm going with this is Tiras is the Rosh of Ezekiel 38. So just hold your place here because there's a there's an important... Uh, exegetical factor in understanding uh, Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38.2 says, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now that's the New King James Version. In some modern translations, they will translate that uh, as the uh, uh, chieftains of Meshach and Tubal. They translate Rosh that way because you see the Hebrew word for beginning. Remember, in, we studied this in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, Rashith. Rosh is the, also the Hebrew consonantal pattern for beginning or first one or came to mean chieftain. So there's a certain number of commentators today that take the Rosh of Ezekiel 38-2 as an adjective uh, referring to the chief of these these nations. And I spent a lot of time on this with this dissertation and, and these articles. And this guy has done a fantastic job of demonstrating that this is a noun, it's a proper noun, and it refers to a people group. And he goes back through all of the proper documentation in order to uh, establish this and so the hist- what has happened is a lot of modern translators have put their emphasis on the Vulgate. Uh, Jerome was the early church father who translated the uh, Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament into, into Latin, and that's the Catholic Bible. And he, tra- he could not find a reference to Rosh in anywhere in the Old Testament and he couldn't find a mention of Rosh in Josephus. So his conclusion was that this wasn't a name of a people, but it should be translated chief or head or prince. And so that erroneous translation entered into the history of translation. But it was based on the fact that Rosh is really a... a they didn't understand that Rosh was a form of Tiras. 
And that's where it comes from. And so it, once again, it traces right back to the king, to the uh, table of nations. So this, this Egyptian inscription from the fourth dynasty mentions a male servant from the, <coughs> from the country of Rosh, spelled with an A, not with an O, but it's the same consonant pattern. Later, a thousand years later, in 1570 B.C., there's a new kingdom text that mentions the land of Rishu, which also is located to the far north of Egypt. Then there's another inscription from the time of Hatshepsut, about a hundred years later, in the mid-1400s B.C., or if you take a, re, a revisionist view on the dates, as I do, probably much uh, much later than that, that uh, mentions the country of Reshet. And then one of the more interesting things is, and I find it interesting because of all the work I've done in Judges in the past, Judges 3.8 mentions a king in Aram Naharaim called Kushan Rishathaim. And Kushan is this king's name, and he is called Kushan Rishataim. And it is this root right here that we're looking at. This is the root for Rosh, and it's Kushan of the Rishites, actually. And what we know is that that in uh, if we look at a map of Syria and Iraq, you've got two rivers that come down and merge. And one is the Tigris and one is the Euphrates. And these are the two rivers. Kushan Rishathaim was the ruler of Aram of the two rivers, Aram Naharaim, uh, which is just a Aramaic form of our word Mesopotamia. Meso meaning middle. Potamia is the Latin for rivers, the middle of the rivers. And so we call that area in Iraq uh, Mesopotamia. And Kushan of the Rishathites ruled that area. Well, in the middle second millennium B.C., from approximately 1550 B.C. up to 1300 B.C., this area was called the Kingdom of the Mitanni. And you have a group of people who seem to be Semitic. But they are ruled by a Japhetic or foreign aristocracy, a military group that has come in and conquered them. And they were blue-eyed blondes, and they came from the north. And we have records from Pharaoh uh, Thutmose II and Thutmose III where they captured uh, large numbers of slaves from this area that were blue-eyed blondes. Now, if you go into that area today, we're talking about Syria, Armenia, you're not going to find any blue-eyed blondes. And yet they had large, large numbers, huge numbers of blue-eyed blondes in that area. You, and there are a number of different tombs related to different leaders in that uh, roughly 15th to 16th century B.C., that have pictures of these uh, blue-eyed blondes. And it was after they were finally defeated, about 1250 B.C., which is during the time of the judges. And it is when they're finally defeated during that time that they this blue-eyed blonde group migrates north and ends up in Russia. The Ebla people in Syria, the Ugarid people in northern Canaan, the Hittites and the Assyrians all mention a city of these people that was called, and depends on the language, 
it was either they were either called it was either called Urshu, U R S H U, Rish, or Urash, U R A S H. So you see how this all fits uh, together etymologically. Much later, the Greek geography Strabo refers to this group of people as the Aorsi, A-O-R-S-I. It's that R-S root continental pattern that we're looking for. And these people dominated the Caspian Sea area. That's up just to the north of Syria between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. This is a general area where you have the Taurus Mountains. And, of course, when you look at the word Taurus, it is related to the name we find in Genesis 10, Tyrus. And I, don't even have, I didn't want to take the time, but there is a whole series of documentation, records in different, different languages related to a host of people who have uh, names that are etym- etymologically related to that TRS group. The Greeks uh, or ancient Egyptians also referred to a tourist people. The Greeks called them the Tersinoi. And some of these people uh, that Strabo talks about migrated west and became and were known as the Etruscans. See, you have that TR pattern in there. They became the TRS and Etruscans. They became the Etruscans who preceded the Romans in Italy. So what, you, what we witness here is an expansion of the sons of Japheth from Italy to uh, all across Western Europe and all of Russia. So this is beginning to show that fulfillment of God enlarging uh, Japheth from Genesis uh, 9.27. Then in verse 3, we're told that the sons of Gomer are Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Togarma. Now, Togarma is important because he is, his name is mentioned as under the terminology Beth Targoma, Targoma in uh, Ezekiel 38. But Ashkenaz, now the descendants of Ashkenaz go into Western Europe. And the Jews have said, had this in their records for centuries before Christ, that the Ashkenaz was related to the group that went northwest into Europe. And in fact, most Jews are divided, they come out of Europe, are divided into two groups. The Ashkenazi, which are those that were in Germany, Poland, that part of Europe, and the uh, Sephardic. These are the Jews that were down in the area of Spain. But if you look at the etymology of Ashkenaz, you have an S-H or an S sound, a K and an N. And this becomes the root that you begin to look for. There's a Lake Ascanius in Turkey and also in western Turkey or southwestern Turkey, there's another lake called Iznik. And so you get a reversal of these letters, which often happens, and uh, these simply... Uh, retain elements of the original name of Ashkenaz. 
They operated in the area of Turkey after they came off of Ararat. That was the closest place to go. And then eventually they migrated north and to the west. And as they moved, they left clues. Variants of this name are found everywhere. In fact, if you take the S, then make it a K sound, but we'll write it as a C, and add an N, then you end up with Scandinavia. And there are a number of records from ancient historians. You have... um, all of this is documented, by the way, in various writings by Herodotus, uh, Strabo, Polybius, uh, 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 Josephus, Pliny, uh, many others mention these names. We, we, some of these names have been lost today, but most of them are still located and identified with various place names uh, in most of these countries. Now, there was another group of Ashkenazi that went to the uh, area of the Caucasus Mountains, which we've already talked about in relationship to the descendants of of Rosh. But they were over in the Caucasus Mountains, and the Assyrians referred to them as the Sakasini. S-A-K-A-S-E-N-E. And the Sakasini were later called by the Greeks the Saxon people, S-A-C-H-S-E-N, and according to Strabo, they moved west and settled in the area of Germany, and then we know them as the Saxon people. So those are all descendants from Ashkenaz. Riphoth is a name that has little uh, evidence in history. There, Perhaps it's related to the Riffian Mountains and uh, mentioned by Strabo. And Virgil and Pliny, some think that it's uh, the R, in, in Riphath you have that RP, and that if you add a UR in the front, you can come up with Europe, and that's, that's one speculation, and that's all it is. Uh, the the, the t- name for Europe is usually traced back to the Greek legend of Europa, and the etymology of that name is, is unknown. Then we have Togarma, mentioned in uh, Ezekiel is part of that Gog and Magog alliance that invades to the south from Russia. Jewish tradition puts them in the area of Armenia. In fact, the ancient Armenians claimed that their ancient ancestor, the founder of the Armenian race, was a man named Hayak, H-I-A-K. And Hayak was the son of Targum, T. A-R-G-O-M, Targum, which sounds like Togarma, who was a grandson of Noah. So again, there is confirmation, correlation with the Scriptures. The Jews often refer to the Turks as Togarma, and sometimes the Black Sea area is called by the Jews the Sea of Togarma. Uh, Josephus identified them with a group called the Thrugramians, and the Greeks called them Phrygians. Uh, so this group ultimately moves north and west, and they too end up in the area of Germany. And then, in, So we have the sons of Gomer. Gomer settles into uh, the European area. We see a vast spread out there. You have Ashkenaz in Germany, Riphoth, Togarma, all end up in the area of Western Europe. And then the sons of Javan 
are Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. Now, he is Javan, or is the father of the Greeks, and these names all come down into Greek history. In fact, Elisha is a name that, be, that uh, is corrupted into Hellas. You pick up that E-L-I, add a rough breathing mark at the front, you get Hellas. And that comes down as Hellas, and the Greeks are known as the Hellenes. This is uh, traced back to uh, Elisha. Josephus connected this name to, uh, to Cyprus as well as to Crete. And perhaps this is the fa- these are the fathers of the early Minoan civilization on Crete that, that eventually died out and migrated into other areas. Uh, due to natural disasters on some parts and, and for other reasons, and we're not sure uh, just just um, what all was involved in that. Uh, Tarshish, let me see, Tarshish is uh, often associated with Spain, and it's mentioned in Second Chronicles 9.21 that the king, that is Solomon, had ships which went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram, and once every three years the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. So this was an area that was known for maritime trading. Katim is also associated with the islands around Greek in the Aegean Sea, and so are the Dodonim. Not much is said about them. There is a passage in First Chronicles 1-7 that is a parallel to this, but instead of having Dodanim, it has Rodanim. Now that is interesting because in the Hebrew, this is the letter D, Dalit, and this is the letter Resh. Notice the only difference is that little uh, tittle there. That's what Jesus was referring to when he talked about every jot and tittle. And that's the only difference, so there's probably some, some uh, manuscript corruption there. But the thought is that the Dodonim or Rhodonim are related to those who settled on the Isle of Rhodes, not Rhode Island, but the Isle of Rhodes. You know, that's one view of where... Anybody, anybody wonder where they got the name Rhode Island for that little state over there? <clears throat> There's the island. I forget the name of it. Now, it's not Block Island, but it's one of the other islands down in the entrance to the... Um, what's the sound over there? Nantucket, right? Um, and one of the early explorers looked at the island and it had the same shape as the Isle of Rhodes. So he called that Rhode Island. And then the rest of the state was, was uh, what Providence Plantation. And then ultimately the whole state just was called Rhode Island. But that's just a little free history. So the Dodonim settled on the Isle of Rhodes. So all these folks who are descendants of <coughs> Javan, are all merge into what becomes the Greek people. Then verse 5 summarizes that from these, the coastland peoples <coughs> of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to their language, according to their families, and into their nations. Now the point is, you have to understand this word coastland. It is the Hebrew word. It's a funny little Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word. It looks like this. You have an Aleph, I, double Y, I, Y. So I'm not even sure how I... E, Y, 
And this word means coastland, but it's applied in a tremendous number of passages, and it refers to all those basically Gentiles who are living off to the northwest somewhere. And it doesn't just refer to people who are living on the coast, but it basically refers to Western Europeans. And if you think about it, from the islands around Greece, the islands, you go to Sicily, you go out to, to Ireland and England, and then you go on up into uh, <clears throat> around Scandinavia, there's a tremendous amount of islands. And if you look at a huge map, Western Europe almost looks like a peninsula sticking out. And so these are the coastlands, and that's what that is a, a general term for, describing that group of people. So the, it includes everyone from the Russians to the Western Europeans, and it's a beginning point of the fulfillment of their expansion. Now, eventually, the Western Europeans expand to North America and South America, and through all of the great explorers of the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, you have the establishment of Western European colonies all over the world, so that by the early 1900s, there was a saying that the sun never set on the Union Jack. The Union Jack was the flag of Britain and the British Empire, and they had colonies all over the world. So this is the ultimate fulfillment of the expansion blessing of Japheth. Japhethites have expanded further than any of the other descendants. Of course, now you have people scattered all over the world, and you have a global environment, but that is why. Why did that happen? You have have, Japanese down in Peru. You have a huge number of colonies of Asians in different places. But that only happened as a result of Western European expansion. If it weren't for Western European expansion, all the Japanese would still be on the island of Japan. They didn't want any contact with the rest of the world. The Chinese were the same way. These groups were not sending out explorers around the world. It is the Western Europeans that go out and basically conquer and control the world. And as a result of their the establishment by the Japhethites of trade routes and international trade, you then have the expansion of Hamites and Shemites all over the world. But you wouldn't have that cultural trade in exchange if it weren't for the foundation laid by the Japhethites. They are the ones who have that commercial and intellectual uh, and geographical expansion that provides the blessing for the rest of the world. And if you haven't traveled internationally, uh, it may surprise you to, to understand how much the rest of this, this world is dependent upon U.S. commercialism and Western European commercialism. If you were to take out all that Western Europe and the U.S. provides for the rest of the world, they would collapse and they'd be living in mud and wattle huts in a, in a minute because they don't have the, the inner cultural core to produce the kind of industry and advanced science that came out of Japheth. They have certain raw material. This is a whole other study that I don't have time to get into, but there's a number of works. Uh, One book called Noah's Three Sons by Arthur Custance is one I would recommend if you're interested in this. There's a detailed study showing that ultimately there's a difference between science and technology. Now, most of you don't know that. You, use, you and I use those terms almost interchangeably. But he quotes numerous 
uh, technical writers, uh, scientific authorities that recognize there's a difference between technology, the term technology and the term science. And the term technology has to do with rudimentary inventions, being able to make gunpowder, for example, or being able to build the pyramids with the kind of tools they had in the ancient world. But science is when you apply philosophy and create universal principles from your rudimentary technology. Hamitic people were the pioneers of basic technology, and most inventions, what we call inventions, are all ultimately traced to rudimentary inventions developed by Hamitic people. In fact, he makes the claim and documents it that Japhitic people haven't contributed a, a single invention in human history. By that, you have to understand what he means by invention. He would not classify the automobile as an invention. He would classify the wheel as an invention. Okay, rudimentary uh, tools, basic things that undergird all other other developments. We we classify something like the cotton gin as an invention, but the cotton gin is based on other rudimentary things that were just put together in an innovative way to create a new kind of tool. And it was those other aspects, those other developments, that are the inventions. Like paper is an invention. Uh, it's just taking raw materials and coming up with something new. And his argument is that the Japhitic people took the raw technology of Amitic people and expanded it. because, And that's where science and philosophy comes in. Then when you apply philosophy, which is the contribution of the Greeks, to the rudimentary principles of Scripture, you develop what? Theology. You, didn't ha- you don't have any theology produced by the interaction of Hamitic and Semitic culture, but when you have the interaction of Japhitic and Shemitic culture, you develop theology. And even now, you go into third world countries, you go to Africa, South America, wherever you go, India, they're not producing native theologians. They're relying upon theology that was developed in Europe. So all of this is the outworking in history of this threefold division between uh, the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the Japhethites are the ones that expand the most geographically, uh, intellectually, and economically so that the rest of the world prospers from them. The Hamites are the founders of raw civilization, and we will get into that uh, next time, studying the development of the all the basic ancient civilizations, Egypt, uh, Sumer, Mesoamerica, uh, China, in, in the Indus Valley. All of those civilizations were founded by the descendants of Ham, but they only went so far and then they collapsed. And so we have to look at that and see how that plays itself out and what the root issues are there. And ultimately the root issues all come down to spirituality and God's plan with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study the outworking of history, that there, there is a plan, there's a purpose, and that you are working out uh, all of these details in history, and we will ultimately see the victory that Jesus Christ brings in history as his kingdom is established on the earth and then turned over to you at the conclusion of the millennial kingdom. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study, that we may have our confidence in your word strengthened, and that we may come to a greater appreciation of how you are working in history. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.